As mentioned, the text for this morning's sermon is Judges 14, which we have already read together. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we live our lives as Christians here on earth, sometimes we might wonder as we look around us, can the, can the church survive in this world? Can the church survive in this country? The onslaught of secularism is strong, worldliness is always a pull to our hearts. And it can be hard to see God at work at times. Christ's church seems very small. Well, it looked that way in the time of the judges, too, and and perhaps even more so than now, and I would say even more so than now. And to be sure, these these were tough times for God's people. Read through the book of Judges This is not a pretty time in the history of God's people. And in our text, Philistine oppression threatened to snuff out the Old Testament church at this time. But there is still the Lord, the faithful God. The Lord, the faithful God, was still at work. He was still at work among His people. And that's what we should see also from this text this morning, from Judges 14. Yes, the story, it seems to focus all on Samson and on his escapades among the Philistines and also this event with the lion. However, we should see that the Lord, He is the main character of this text. Although it feels like He's behind the scenes, Really, he takes center stage by his powerful working. God is at work continually to build his church in this world, also today. He continually is, he's continually working to bring the Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. In the Old Testament times, he will build his church even now. That brings us to the sermon theme, the Lord works to put enmity between Samson and and the Philistines. Now, in the liturgy sheet, you'll see that we have two points. Uh, The Lord does this, first of all, to restore His rule over His people, and secondly, to restore the promised land to His people. When I was writing the sermon, the first point stretched out quite long, so I I added a first point uh, in front. The Lord does this, first of all, to fulfill His hidden purposes. So, that's our first point, to fulfill His hidden purposes. Now, I want you to imagine you were reading the Samson story for the very first time. After reading Judges 13, you might have very high hopes for Samson. His birth is announced by God. He will be a Nazarite for life set apart to the Lord and His servants. And it says He will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And then at the end of chapter 13, we read that the Lord blessed him, and also that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. It all sounds very promising. 
That is, until we get to the very next chapter. Samson's strength is legendary, of course, but the first thing we see is Samson's weakness. Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a Philistine woman. And no sooner does he see her, it seems, but he returns home, and he demands that his parents get her for him for a wife. That is not how you choose a spouse. And neither is this how you talk to your parents. But this is Samson, impulsive, strong-willed, reckless. And Samson's parents, they respond correctly to his demand, Samson, are there not women from among the Israelites? Why would you marry from the uncircumcised Philistines? They're outside of God's covenant people. They're not heirs of the promises of God. But Samson is adamant, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Well, that is significant. In these words, Samson gives us a picture of all Israel in the book of Judges. They do what is right in their own eyes. See, both Samson and Israel, they were set apart to the Lord. They were called to be holy. But Israel, as a people, chased after foreign idols. And here is Samson chasing after foreign women. And like it goes for Israel chasing idols, it won't go well for Samson. Yet before we get to Samson's marriage, we should see even more tension injected into this story. Listen to verse 4. Verse 4 gives us a heavenly perspective on these events. There it says, Samson's father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So, even though Samson is acting on one level to fulfill his goals, the Lord is acting on another level to fulfill his purposes. And this is the mystery of God's providence. God was at work in bringing this whole situation about. In fact, a better translation of verse 4 may be, his father and mother did not know that she was from the Lord. As in the Lord purposely drew Samson to this Philistine woman. Of course, it must be emphasized here that all of this does not mean that the Lord is condoning Samson's actions. Well, God is sovereign, but humans are responsible. That's the mystery of God's providence, and we see that throughout Scripture. Think of this in terms of the death of Christ in Acts 4, for example. Believers acknowledge that men like Herod and Pilate were gathered together sinfully against the Lord Jesus, and yet they also acknowledge that those men did whatever God had predestined to take place. God is sovereign, yet humans are responsible for their own actions and their own sins. And God does not make 
anyone's sin. But in any case, verse 4 is key to understanding this whole chapter. The main character in this chapter is the Lord, and He is at work. Verse 4 reveals God's hidden purposes. The Lord was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. See, the Lord, this is why the Lord was seeking this occasion, because the Philistines ruled over God's people. This is simply not the way things were meant to be. Yahweh is Lord of His people, not the Philistines or Dagon, their God. Think of what we sang from, from Psalm 105. He gave to Israel the nation's land that they might serve Him all their days. But right now, they were serving the Philistines, and that could not be. Brings us to our next point. So, God was putting enmity between Samson and the Philistines, second of all, to restore His rule over His people. So, the Lord was, Yahweh was going to show the Philistines who truly was Lord. He was going to start to break their power over His people, and He would restore His rule over Israel. And this is similar to what happened after the fall into sin. You see, when when humanity sinned against God, we made ourselves subject to the devil and his rule. And sin and Satan, by nature, rule over people, ever since the fall into sin. But what did God promise after the fall? He said, I will put enmity or hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What does that mean? Well, the word uh, enmity, uh, the, the root word for that Hebrew word means enemy. And God promised to make His people enemies of Satan again. They had joined His side, but He was going to break that friendship, make them enemies. The Lord would make sure there would always be war between Satan and God's people, not peace. And that theme appears in this text. The ungodly Philistines were ruling over God's people, but God would produce hostility between Israel and the Philistines. He would do it through Samson. In fact, we should view Samson as one example of the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3. And this is one reason why Judges 13 focuses so much on Samson's birth. He's a seed of the woman. That's probably why Samson's mother remains nameless through Judges 13. She's always referred to as the woman. And the Hebrew word for wife is woman, always just the woman. And through this woman, God brought a seed or offspring, as He promised in Genesis 3. And God would put enmity between this offspring and God's enemies. And we see this work out in the rest of the chapter in fact, each of the following sections of the chapter serve this purpose of God, God working to put enmity between Samson and the Philistines. And it begins with the episode of the lion. Samson went down to Timnah along with his parents. At some point, Samson separated himself from them, 
And near the vineyards of Timnah, a young lion came roaring out against him. Again, imagine if you were reading this story for the very first time, you would not know about Samson's strength yet through the Lord. And given the ferocity of this lion, you might think Samson, he's a goner. And he would have been if left to himself. But the only thing faster than this lion is the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit rushed upon him and gave him incredible strength. And using only his bare hands, Samson grabbed the lion and just tore it in pieces. No, the text says Samson tore the lion into pieces as one tears a young goat. No, that's a bit of a strange image for us, perhaps. I've never, certainly never seen that before. But if you want a modern image, it's like a strong man uh, tearing apart a phone book as, as somebody just tears a single piece of paper. It's nothing. The lion is no contest for the Lord's spirit-filled judge. And after the lion is dead, Samson went down to speak with the woman. And again, it says she was right in his own eyes. There it pops up again. But when he came back later to take her as his wife, he turned aside to, to see this lion carcass. And wouldn't you know it, there was a swarm of bees in the carcass and honey. What a lovely surprise. And so Samson thought, it wouldn't hurt to stop for a small smackerel of honey, would it? Besides, the reason bees make honey is so that I can eat it. So Samson scraped some of the honey out. He then came to his, he ate it, and he came to his parents, he gave some to them, and they ate it too. But he didn't tell them where he had gotten it from. Now, what should we make of this honey lion episode? What's the purpose of it? Well, there's a number of things. First, the killing of the lion shows the great strength the Lord gave Samson. And this is only a sign of things to come. And Israel should take note. With the Lord on your side, your enemies will not be able to stand against you. And that's true of Samson. It all depends on God. Second, the eating of the honey shows Samson's reckless side again. As a Nazarite, he was not supposed to touch a dead body, but here he is scraping honey out of this lying carcass. Third, and most importantly, the Lord will use the lion and the honey event to increase the hostility between Samson and the Philistines. That's why it's important that it happens right before the wedding. See, the, the Lord's going to use this event to fulfill his goal. We see this played out in the next scene. Samson and his parents went down to Timnah. Samson prepared a feast for his wedding. As Samson was by himself, the people of Timnah provided him with 30 friends for the feast. And perhaps for some wedding entertainment, Samson gave them a challenge. He said, let me tell you a riddle. If you can give the answer during the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if, if you can't, then you will give them to me. Well, Samson's new friends were up for the challenge. So he told them the riddle. Out of the eater, 
came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Well, not surprisingly, these 30 Philistines were stumped. I'm sure you would be too. The riddle seems nearly impossible to answer. It's almost like Bilbo from The Hobbit asking Gollum, what have I got in my pocket? It's not really fair. Well, these Philistines weren't about to lose, so they resorted to blackmail. They tell Samson's bride, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. And here is where the tension really ratchets up. We will burn you with fire. With this threat, the Lord is beginning to inject enmity between them. This is also why our text stresses that Samson did not tell his parents about the lion or the honey. You see, the only avenue these Philistine men had to unlock the riddle is through Samson's bride. And faced with a threat, she threw herself upon Samson, bawling away, You don't love me. You only hate me. And she berated him as long as the feast lasted. What a happy wedding between the happy couple. And finally, because she pressed him so hard on the seventh day, Samson finally gave in. And then, unsurprisingly, the woman immediately told his 30 friends. And so they gave Samson the answer in the nick of time. What is stronger than a lion? And when it's time for something sweet, what is sweeter than honey? Samson knows exactly what's happened. And so he responds, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Samson is irate. He's fuming mad. But this is just the scenario the Lord has been working towards. The hostility is building. You see, with Samson's marriage to a Philistine, bridges of peace were being built between Israel and her enemies. The Lord's judge and the very people the judge was meant to deliver Israel from. And Samson is even given 30 Philistine friends, companions, speaks of peace and relationship. But with this episode, the peace and this friendship has been shattered forever. There's no restoring this relationship. And this marriage, we know right from the get-go, it's not going to work. But notice how this goes a step further. Samson must pay up the 30 changes of clothing. But there's no chance he's walking into the local Timna tailors to buy some designer suits. Instead, Samson walks into downtown Ashkelon. A spirit of the Lord rushed upon him again, and now instead of killing a lion, he puts to death 30 Philistines, strips them of their clothing, hands them to his companions. There you go. Enjoy your clothing. And we need to understand how big a deal this is. See, Timnah was only a small village just on the very outskirts of Philistine territory. But Ashkelon was 40 kilometers west of Timnah, a major city in the very heart of enemy land. 
And Samson marches right into the Times Square of Philistia. And right there in broad daylight, puts to death 30 men, strips them of their clothing. And with this act, Samson just threw down the gauntlet. It's a cannon shot across the, the bow of the Philistines. It's a declaration of war. Samson has made himself enemy number one. And this is the beginning of the end of Philistine rule over Israel. This is exactly what the Lord was seeking in this chapter. To put an end to the peace between Israel and Philistia. The Lord will not have His people ruled by anyone else but Him. So He works to break the rule of the Philistines. He has injected enmity between the seed of the woman, Samson, and the seed of the serpent, the Philistines. This is what God has also done in Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ is the ultimate seed of the woman. And He came to break the peace between God's chosen children, believers, and the devil. He came to overthrow Satan's rule over God's people. And just as God used one man, Samson, to break the peace with Philistia, He also used one man, Jesus Christ, to break the rule of the devil. But notice one thing. The way each man accomplished this was different. Samson put to death 30 Philistines, stripped them of their clothing and their linen garments. What about Christ? He was stripped of his clothing and his linen garments, and he was put to death. That's what happened at his death. The Roman soldiers took his clothing. They crucified him on the cross. But here's the amazing thing about it. This is the very way that the Lord Christ began to overthrow Satan's rule over us by being put to death. See, Christ in his death effectively shattered the peace between Satan and God's chosen ones, believers, us. See, by his death, Christ bought us from the power of the devil, and he made us his own. Romans 14, verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living, that he might be our Lord, that he might rule us, and not the devil or sin. In Christ's death, Satan has been dethroned as Lord of our lives. Christ is now Lord. See, through the death and resurrection of Christ, everything has changed. Our old nature has been put to death. Our new nature has come to life. Slavery to sin has been broken for us. The rule of sin and Satan has been overthrown. We have a new master, we have a new Lord. We've been given new desires. We have a new way of life. Christ has put enmity between us and the devil, between us and those who do not know Christ. As Christ himself said, I've not come to bring peace to the world, but division. 
Paul says in Galatians 6, by the cross of Christ, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We've been separated. This does not mean we fight against the world as Samson did. No, not at all. Instead, it looks more like Christ. If our enemy is hungry, we feed him. If we are asked to go one mile, we go two miles. If we are cursed by the world, we respond with blessing. We make it entirely clear by our actions that we have a different allegiance than the world, than those who do not know our Lord Jesus Christ. We make it clear we have, a, we have different desires. We have a different God. We show in every way that we have different priorities and a different way of life. That's because... We have a new master. We've been bought by our Lord Jesus Christ, by his blood shed on the cross, and now he rules over us, and now we serve him. That brings us to our last point. So this passage is all about the faithfulness of the Lord. He works to fulfill his promise in Genesis 3 to be put hostility between the two kinds of offspring. However, there's another promise in the background of this story, and that's God's promise to Abraham. God promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's offspring. That's what we sang from Psalm 105. Firm stands his word to Abraham, spoken his oath to Isaac, never broken. Uh, He promised Israel, you I'll give the land where you as heirs may live. The land was promised to Abraham's offspring. And this is the second reason why the Lord works through Samson against the Philistines. See, these uncircumcised Philistines, who are not heirs of God's covenant, right now they are enjoying the promised land. And we see this in the little details of the text. Think of verse 5. Samson went down with his parents to Timnah, and it says, they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And that's an important detail, right? God continually promised Israel that in the land, every man and woman of Israel would sit under his own vine, under his own fig tree, right? Israel would dispossess the land, they would be at rest, they would enjoy the fruits of the land. But we see here this promise has not yet fully come about. The uncircumcised Philistines are controlling the vineyard. They are enjoying the land, not Israel. So they are working against God's promises. They are taking the promised land away from the heirs of the promise, reaching for it with power and not by faith. And God will not let that go on forever. This theme arises also in the detail about the lion. Here we have a lion roaring around, attacking any unsuspecting person. This was not to be when Israel enjoyed rest in the promised land. In Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 7, God promised to drive out the nations little by little. Otherwise, the wild animals would multiply against them. We see that with this lion. So, Samson's killing of the lion at the vineyards was more than just a show of strength. Instead, showed that God was using Samson to restore 
and subdue the land for Israel. God's promise to Abraham was being fulfilled through this deliverer, Samson. This is further confirmed with the detail of the honey. How did God constantly describe the promised land to Israel? He called it a land flowing with milk and honey. And here we have honey flowing in the most unlikeliest place, a lion's carcass. And we get another hint of this purpose of God at the wedding feast. When the 30 Philistine companions can't solve the riddle, they ask Samson's wife, have you invited us here to impoverish us? But a better translation is this, have you invited us here to dispossess us? Same word used to describe Israel dispossessing the nations of Canaan. Have you invited us here to dispossess us, they ask. Well, Samson's wife sure didn't, but the Lord sure did. In fact, he wants to dispossess all of Philistia. It's clear that Samson has many faults, but all these details make something else clear. God is using this man to fulfill his promises to Abraham. Of course, God would not ultimately fulfill that promise through Samson. He would begin to do it. But he would use Samson to point us to Christ again. Like Samson, God would use one man to fulfill the promise about the land. In fact, Romans 4 makes it clear that the land promised to Abraham was not just about the land of Canaan, it was the entire earth, the world. And Christ is a true Son of God, the true seed of Abraham. He is heir of this world, and He gained the inheritance for us who believe. Christ was filled with the Spirit at His baptism. Filled with the Spirit, He battled against the devil in the desert, that roaring lion. And after, after having withstood all temptation, it says the wild beasts were with Him beginning to subdue the land, beginning to gain the inheritance. And at the end of his life, he was crucified on the cross and raised on the third day. This makes him heir of the world. And we are heirs in Jesus Christ. It says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, by faith. One day, Christ will return. He will remove unbelievers forever from the earth. But he will let us who believe in Him enjoy the world and eternal life to the enjoyment of and glory of God forever. Amen.